Isaiah 53, verse 3 and verse 7. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Four days that changed the world is our theme for this Easter. The four days, Thursday through Sunday, of the first Easter week. And our evidence for these four days is from Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel is one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the author is Matthew, one of Jesus' close group of followers, his disciples. They lived with Jesus for three years. And Matthew was an eyewitness of what happened in these four days that changed the world. He saw for himself what happened, and he wrote it down so that we can know for certain what happened. Moreover, Matthew's account includes countless testimonies of other eyewitnesses who were there, people who would have discredited Matthew's account were it not true, but they didn't. Quite the opposite happened. They corroborated Matthew's testimony, and the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John quickly became the dominant source documents in the early church and have remained so ever since. Matthew's narrative is extraordinary. It is compelling. It is powerful. It draws us in as readers inviting us to stand alongside different characters in the unfolding drama, watching, listening, watching Jesus die, seeing him laid in the tomb, and meeting the risen Christ. The question Matthew, our evangelist, asks us is, what do we make of Jesus? Was his death and resurrection as Jesus claimed, and as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John claimed, as the whole Bible claims and countless thousands of millions of Christians down the centuries, was his death on that one day, and was his resurrection the most important event in human history? four days that changed the world. The first day was Thursday. Jesus spent the evening with his disciples at a house in Jerusalem. They'd come to the city a few days before for the Passover, and they gathered in a house like many others to celebrate the Passover meal. Passover remembered the events of the Exodus in the history of God's people, when God had rescued them from their captivity in Egypt, 
and brought them to the land of promise. And the decisive one event that led to their deliverance, God's wrath in the angel of death had swept through the land of Egypt, but passed over his people because of the blood of a sacrificed lamb smeared on their doorposts. The blood of the lamb saved them. And in the intimate atmosphere of the Passover meal, with those whom he loved and loved him best, Jesus took up bread and wine as was customary, symbols that traditionally recalled the events of that first Passover. And then he said something extraordinary. This bread represents me, my body. This wine represents my blood that will be shed for the forgiveness of many people's sins. Jesus announced on the first of these four remarkable days what had been promised all through the Old Testament Scriptures, that he would bring an altogether new and glorious exodus, rescue and deliverance not from captivity, but from sin, the very heart problem of humanity and our separation from God. Jesus' rescue will bring those who believe, not to a promised land, but to a new creation, eternity with God. How will he do it? By dying a sacrificial death, his body broken, and his bloodshed. After the meal, Jesus and his disciples walked down the Kidron Valley 30 minutes or 40 minutes to the Garden of Gethsemane and Olive Grove that they knew well. The hours around midnight, perhaps one in the morning of the first Good Friday. Hours of agony in Gethsemane. In the dark watches of the night, the terrors of all nights stole upon the Lord Jesus. As alone, he saw and felt the full horror of what he must endure later that day on the cross. He talks about a cup that he must drink. That cup that caused him such agony, that made him sweat blood, that assaulted him to the very core of his being, as he contemplated it, was God's wrath, God's judgment. For Jesus would bear on the cross the totality of the eternal wrath of God for the thousands of millions of people who would, through all of history, believe in him for their salvation. He saw that he would be crushed under the weight of God's wrath. Think of that weight some of that weight was the weight of judgment that was rightly mine. Like every man or woman who believes. We watch Gethsemane lest we forget its agony. But Jesus came through Gethsemane 
committed to go to the cross. It was in the garden that he was betrayed by Judas and arrested. During the night, Jesus was tried before Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest, and the Jewish ruling council. His trial, and later that morning his trial before Pilate, did not establish his guilt. Rather, the trial established his innocence. Justice was done, except with an innocent verdict, there should be no condemnation. And at that point, justice was abandoned. But he was innocent and yet condemned, and that is what it took to save us. While Jesus was being tried by the Sanhedrin, Peter, one of his disciples, was out in the courtyard. Three times he said he did not know the man that he loved best on earth. Pressed, he said, I want nothing to do with Jesus. And in that dramatic way, Peter is faced with the fact that he, like everyone else, needs the forgiveness that Jesus' death brings. And this is the first point that Matthew asks us to stand where Peter stands, hiding behind that pillar, looking at the innocent Christ being condemned and recognizing that he needs to be condemned for me. Peter, when he realized that he needed forgiven, went outside and wept bitterly. Jesus, I am a sinner. I need you to die for me. Our first reading is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and starting at verse 11. Matthew chapter 27, and if you've got a church Bible, that's on page 834, 834. Starting at verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, 
His wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus was tried by the Jewish ruling council. And at dawn, Jesus was tried by the Roman governor, Pilate. It was customary during the Jewish Passover feast to release one prisoner to the crowd. Pilate was holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Pilate wanted to release Jesus whom he knew was not guilty of any crime. The chief priests, rulers, and the crowd want Pilate to release Barabbas, who is guilty. You see the drama unfolding. They want Jesus, who is not guilty, to be condemned. And they want Barabbas, who is guilty, to be forgiven. And that, in the end, is what Pilate agreed to do. He washed his hands of any culpability. It is, and you can see it on the picture, a straight substitution. The one who is guilty and deserves to be punished is set free. The one who is not guilty is condemned and takes the punishment. And that is a picture of the Christian gospel. Jesus takes the place of the guilty sinner. Jesus takes the punishment that the guilty sinner deserves. Now, Matthew, our evangelist, wasn't provocative when he asked us to stand in the shoes behind that pillar with the Apostle Peter. convicted by our sin with a contrite realization that Jesus needs to die for me. Matthew, our evangelist, is more provocative here. And you see, in the end, to become a Christian requires a great deal of humility. He asks us to stand where Barabbas stood.
next to Jesus by the judgment seat. And to realize that we are guilty because we are sinful. We are deserving of punishment and the judgment of God. However we assess ourselves relative to our fellow humanity, it is to a holy God in the end that we must all give an account. And Jesus, the one who stands there and the one who is innocent yet condemned, tells us repeatedly that no one can be reconciled to God other than through trusting in him. What emotions does that stir in us? For those who are Christians, thankfulness that Jesus took our place. Maybe for someone, shock that he must. Or maybe just no. I am nothing like Barabbas, and I do not need Jesus. Why would you say that? Because our sins are nothing like his. So surely God will look over our sins and accept us as we are. Jesus, again and again, turns to humanity and he says, no, you are sinful through and through, and I must die to give you a clean heart. Peter, I guess, could say that he was nothing like Barabbas, but Peter and you and me and all who will be saved need to accept that Jesus takes our place as guilty sinners and receives the punishment for sin that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus dies in our place. That is the understanding that is required for faith. Continuing in Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down 
and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Matthew's account describes how Jesus is handed over to be crucified. It describes his crucifixion in very few words. Simply these words, and when they had crucified him. Matthew simply records the fact of the crucifixion, but does not dwell on the act of the crucifixion, awful as it was. Matthew's focus is on the contrast between the slander and the blasphemy that surrounds Jesus and the silence of Jesus. Jesus was mocked and slandered by the Roman soldiers. Why, why did they gather the whole battalion to witness his humiliation? They would strip him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They struck him. They scourged him to within an inch of his life. They led him away to be crucified, and they crucified him. And as Jesus hung on the cross, those who passed by derided him. The chief priests, the scribes and the elders mocked him. The robbers crucified alongside him also reviled him. Slander, mockery, and hatred. The words, Jesus Christ, blasphemed to his face. But as the prophet Isaiah had said, he was despised and rejected, and we esteemed him not. Now, where are we now in the narrative? If you are a Christian, if you have come to see that Jesus has died for your sins, that is where, if you became a Christian in adult life, you used to stand, we esteemed him not. We may not have slandered him to his face, but we did not esteem him. Slander can be indifference or misunderstanding, but we did not esteem him. That is who we were if we are Christians. 
except now you feel shame? Or is it where you are, standing still among the scoffers? What does Jesus say to us, to you, if you are someone who might mock or slander him? And I guess you're not because you're here. But Jesus Christ is a swear word in our public discourse. What does Jesus say? He did not open his mouth. Do we realize why Jesus did not respond in like to the slander, the mockery, the indifference, the rejection? Why did he go like a lamb to the slaughter? Why did this man who had done extraordinary things, recorded by Matthew in his eyewitness testimony, healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, stilling stormy waters, silencing the wind, exercising demons, feeding multitudes, lifting the hand of a dead child and giving her life, interrupting a funeral, opening up the hearse and raising a body, silent. He kept his silence and went like a lamb to the slaughter for two reasons. One, for you and to guarantee his own condemnation. And his silence in the face of the mockery, slander, and rejection thrown at him moves people, and still does, and all over the world and all through history, under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to stop blaspheming him and to be silent before him, to stop hiding our face from him, but looking upon his face and esteeming him as our Savior. Our reading tonight concludes with Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 to 61. Chapter 27, verse 45 to 61. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were open, 
and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. striking as you read that account of Jesus' death, the very, very heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Matthew peppers his narrative with names, testimonies, witnesses, people who would surely have discredited this were it not true. Matthew takes us to the very heart of the gospel, the actual dying and death of Jesus. Matthew begins and ends his description of the death of Jesus with darkness. It is the darkness of dereliction. From the sixth hour there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From midday until noon, until three o'clock in the afternoon, there was total darkness over the whole land. Now, the darkness, this real physical event that happened, is a supernatural sign of God's judgment. In the dark, in the darkness that is a sign of wrath, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, bearing the wrath of God, in fulfillment of the agony that he had contemplated in Gethsemane, his body wrecked by the physical torture of the crucifixion. But there is no mention of that for the greater agony by infinite times is the spiritual agony of wrath and the abandonment by his Father. His Father turns his face from his Son because the Son has become sin and the Father cannot look any longer on his Son, and instead pours out his wrath. Why did Jesus cry, why? 
not, I think, a cry of ignorance, simply a cry of agonized dereliction and separation. It's visceral and human, isn't it, to cry, why? Why? We've all done it. Jesus sums it all up and cries to his Father, why? All that happened is witnessed by those around the cross. Some of the bystanders said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them ran and took a sponge. Others said, wait, let us see whether he will come. Elijah was a prophet. They're just mocking him. They're kind of clutching for words to throw at him as he dies. And those who mock him at this point in history, on this most central of all days, are in the darkness. They mock him in the dark. They are in the night. They mock him with wrath and judgment all around them. And then there is the darkness of real physical death. Jesus is taken down from the cross and put in a stone-cold tomb. Matthew twice refers to his dead body, and twice, three times, refers to the tomb. A grave is a bleak place, a cold place. A crematorium, a cremator, is a bleak place. Dark darkness, dereliction, and death. And at this point in history, all that is darkest that faces humanity comes together on Christ. What is it that comes together? Dereliction, judgment, and death. But into the darkness there breaks awesome light. Not yet the light of the resurrection, but the light of victory over sin. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And that is Jesus' final cry as he bows his head, not a cry of forsakenness, but a cry that John records in his gospel, it is finished. At that moment, Christ died for our sins. When Christ breathed his last, he died for our sins. It is a moment of victory. Now consider what happened at that moment when Christ said, it is finished and died. Let me just point you to what Matthew writes. He writes this, 
at that moment when Jesus said, it is finished, and sin had been paid for, Matthew writes, and behold, or literally, look and see. How can we look and see if it is dark? Because it is not dark anymore. For when Jesus cried out in victory and gave up his spirit, the darkness disappeared, and dereliction, and judgment, and death were dealt fatal blows for those who look to Christ. And these words that we sang, marvelous words, now the darkness flees, now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head, curtain torn in two, dead or raised to life, finished. This is the power of the cross. And now see in the light what happened. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Imagine the, you know, the people who were in the temple were not at the cross. The rip of that curtain and the tearing of that temple curtain from top to bottom is a sign that God and humanity are no longer separated by a constant stream of ritualistic sacrifices and priests and all the rest of it. The temple curtain is ripped because the last final sacrifice has been made. And there is, for those who believe, for you and me, full, unfettered, intimate access to Christ in the person of His Spirit. And where there is reconciliation between God and humanity, there is always resurrection. And so that day the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And there is no way that Matthew would have written that were it not true. They would have just ripped up his gospel. The power of the cross that day ripped the curtain from top to bottom and people lying in their graves came out and were raised. The tombs were opened. Death went into reverse. And that is simply a foretaste of the resurrection of all believers when Jesus comes again. The light dawns, and people believe. People who were blind and scornful, who slandered him, who simply could not understand, had their eyes opened and they believed. Who believed? It's extraordinary. The man who stretched out Jesus' arms and nailed his hands and feet to the cross believed. That is astonishing. It is only within the realm of the power of God that that man who had held a hammer 
fell on his knees and said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Not just him, Matthew says, all those who were with him believed. And what an insight that is into the extraordinary power of the cross to save. What evidence it is of the power of the gospel that people like this can be saved, that anyone can be saved. And then the woman who had journeyed with Jesus to the cross, there were many there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Devadee. For now they could not understand with tears in their eyes, but in a very wonderful way they would get to meet the risen Christ first. And so we've listened, and we've watched Jesus die. All around the cross, as we have seen, there are witnesses. All around the cross, there are views. The big question is, are we standing in the dark or in the light? Are we in the darkness or in the light? The darkness of slander or ridicule, refusing to look at Jesus, the darkness of indifference, or simply misunderstanding. To stand in the darkness, to stand mocking Jesus, is to stand with the prospect of eternal judgment in hell. What Jesus bore on the cross is the destiny of all who mock Christ. And that is a dreadful place to be. And the invitation from Christ is to come into the light. Come into the light of the one who bore God's wrath and experienced hell that we might not. Come into the light. Come into the light. Now, somebody might be right on the cusp of doing that tonight. We'll do it. Come and speak to Jay or me or pray with us. We'd love to do that, only to help you express your need of Jesus in words. Others would pray with you. But at the very least, if you are not a Christian, take seriously Matthew's testimony. Read it, wrestle with it, understand it. And if your conclusion in the end is that every single one of these people who was there is telling a lie, well, that's your right. But don't allow anyone to persuade you just not to bother investigating or thinking at all. That's a foolish thing to do. Jesus dies to forgive the sins of humanity. This is my body. My blood is shed for your forgiveness. Come into the light and live your life in the light and die in the light and be raised to everlasting 
life.